With a first name like Camillus, you know he was destined to do something grand. At first, Camillus Sidney Fly was a simple farmer from Napa, California, born to parents who had emigrated from Missouri in 1849. But after marrying his wife, Mary Goodrich, in 1879, the pair decided to plant themselves somewhere that would allow them to turn their shared hobby into a paying gig. The hobby in question was photography, and the place that allowed them to flourish was Tombstone, Arizona. By 1880, the flies were living in Tombstone, where Camillus, or C.S. as you'll usually see him refer to, was contributing photos to the Arizona Illustrated Quarterly publication in Tucson. And sharp-eared listeners will know that the flies have actually made an appearance in our story before. Because to support their photography business, the flies also invested in another much-needed institution in Tombstone, a boarding house. On October 26th, 1881, so just as Geronimo has broken out of the reservation for the second time, Staying in the Fly Boarding House was one John Harris Doc Holliday and Big Nose Kate Elder. And it turns out that Doc would end up having a little scrape that morning that involved about 30 seconds of gunplay in the alley right next to the boarding house. In fact, Ike Clanton, another person involved in this little-known dust-up that I'm sure you've never heard about, ran into Fly's boarding house when the shooting started. But being a footnote in the shootout at the OK Corral isn't why you should know the name C.S. Fly. The reason why you should know the name C.S. Fly comes about four and a half years later, when Fly somehow got word that General George R. Crook was in the area and heading somewhere important. We honestly don't know how he came by this information, but he arranged for a meeting with Crook where he made a proposition. Let me come with you. Surprisingly, the general actually agreed. And so it was that C.S. Fly, and more importantly his photography equipment, was on hand to capture history itself. Because the meeting he and his lens sat in on was the final confrontation between Crook and that ever-wildly renegade, Geronimo. I'm your host, David Rookhausen, And you are listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Episode 108, En Hua. Welcome back, everyone. We left off last week with the senseless death of Captain Emmett Crawford on January 17, 1886, having been shot in the head on January 11th, just hours before he was going to propose peace to the Chiricahua, who had been causing havoc across Arizona, New Mexico, and Mexico for a good eight months. And I know this all happened 136 years ago, but I'm still pretty mad about how that whole thing went down. The only silver lining to the tragedy is that the renegades told First Lieutenant Marion P. Moss that they still wanted to talk peace and that they would meet with General Crook in about a month's time near the U.S.-Mexico border. With this promise secured, Moss and his men decided it was more than high time to get the heck out of Mexico. But the Mexicans were not making that particularly easy for them either. 
Twice on the way north, Moss and his forces met with Mexican troops who were decidedly hostile toward them. One even declared its intention to escort Moss and his men out of the country, something the lieutenant nipped in the bud because there was no telling what kind of trouble the presence of the hated Mexicans would have on the already ill-tempered scouts. Moss would reach southwestern New Mexico on February 1st and instantly wired the news of Crawford's death and the hostiles' agreement to Crook. We'll get a little more into Crook's reaction to this news in just a second, but in the meantime, after a few short days of rest, Moss was sent back into Mexico, several miles south of the San Bernardino Ranch, to wait for the smoke signals that would show that the renegades were there and ready to negotiate. However, he was not empowered to negotiate himself, and instead was to wire Crook the moment the Chiricahua arrived so he could come and talk with them. By the second week in February, Moss was in position roughly 8 to 10 miles south of the international border where he just sort of waited and waited and waited. Meanwhile, the Chiricahua, who had made the same old excuses about needing to gather together their herds, also slowly, ploddingly started heading northward. However, despite their promise to Moss that they wouldn't raid as they came up to the meeting, they promptly did so. To be fair to the Renegades, they had lost all their supplies during Crawford's attack on their camp, so they desperately needed horses, food, and blankets just to be able to get to the meeting. They also expected that Crook would let them keep their herds when they returned to the reservation, as they had in the past. Still, along with raiding always went killing, and soon Sonora was up in arms again about Apache attacks that were happening everywhere. The Renegades split up into two parties, one headed by Geronimo and Naiche, while another was headed by Chihuahua, who took off to link up with his brother Ulsana. We last left off with Ulsana in November 1885, when he was up in Arizona and had failed to kill Chato, but had succeeded in raiding and even killing some white mountain Apache before melting back into the desert once again. Now, the short version of his life and times is that he spent December 1885 raiding and killing civilians in New Mexico with soldiers and militia hot on his tail but never quite able to catch him. By December 24th, he had decided to head back down into Mexico and on Christmas Day 1885 crossed the Gila River near the Arizona town of Duncan. After that, it was a mad dash to the border chased by the army and a company of Arizona rangers but by New Year's Eve, Usana and his men had slipped out of Arizona once again. By the way, all the hard riding, stealing, and killing will just go with him down into Mexico, so don't think he suddenly got to Sonora and lost his murderous edge. By the time he had crossed the border, Usana had been in the United States for a little more than two months, and according to the official tally, he and his men had killed 38 people and stolen more than 250 horses, while losing only one man. And if anything, the official tally was probably low-balling the total number of fatalities. But more than that, his bloody, seemingly unstoppable campaign had disrupted commerce and trade throughout a whole region of New Mexico and Arizona, paralyzing a lot of people in fear and putting whole settlements on edge. However, as historian Edwin R. Sweeney points out, if you look at Ulzana's raid in terms of its goals, 
it had not actually accomplished anything. Remember from two episodes ago that the stated objective of this raid was to recover the captured family members of the hostiles still living in Mexico. And where were they? Yep, still at Fort Bowie where Crook had moved them. Nor had Usana accomplished his promise to kill Chato or any other prominent scout leader. If that wasn't enough, you can also lay a lot of the harsher policies toward the Apache directly at Usana's feet. It was the outcry over his rating that caused U.S. officials in Washington to start considering just removing the Chiricahua from Arizona altogether. So once the deportation of the Apache gets underway here soon, remember that Usana carries a lot of the blame for the tragedy that unfolds. While Moss was trying to get out of Mexico, and Usana was trying to get into Mexico, Crook was at Fort Bowie, just waiting for any sign that the campaign was going well. General Philip Sheridan was continuing to pester him for news, any news about the campaign, but Crook could only tell him to wait. But waiting was not doing the general any favors with his critics, who were already starting to smell blood in the water. He had certainly lost the confidence of President Grover Cleveland, but Sheridan's influence kept him from being ousted. The press, with the exception of a paper in Tucson and a paper in Prescott, were already against him. His rival, General Nelson A. Miles, had allies whispering that it was time for a change, and everyone kept saying that his reliance on scouts was a mistake. It's hard to get into the mind of the rank and file in Arizona, but we do have one diary entry from a soldier in the Patagonia Mountains that says the soldiers had decidedly mixed feelings about the general and his policies. Part of this was that Crook didn't go out of his way to make himself more likable. He was notoriously thin-skinned about criticism and would not share his plans or thoughts with anyone, always preferring to keep his plans and his tactics extremely close to the best. If anything I just mentioned concerned him, he didn't show it. In fact, after Moss wired him from New Mexico about Crawford's death and the proposed meeting with Geronimo, Crook went bird hunting for two days. He also seems to have snubbed Moss entirely, giving him little direction besides go and wait for Geronimo, which may or may not have been an intentional snub. This actually gave Moss a near-nervous breakdown as he worried that Crook was angry with him for not pursuing either the Chiricahua or the Mexicans harder. And that is possible. But it's also possible that Crawford's death affected Crook a lot more than we realize, or that this cold shoulder treatment was part of Crook's leadership style and Moss just wasn't in the inner circle. Unlike other generals, like, say, Miles, Crook didn't go out of his way to make friends or gain loyalty. One subordinate noted that Crook, quote, expected the greatest sacrifices from his subordinates while doing nothing for them, end quote. Back to the matter at hand. With the meeting with the hostiles set to happen, Crook conferred with his superiors about the terms. Sheridan was quick to point out to Crook that he needed to adhere to the policy decided earlier that year. That is, all the hostiles had to agree to surrender as prisoners of war and be exiled to Florida. And that, by the way, was supposed to be a permanent exile. The U.S. government never wanted Geronimo to step foot on Arizona soil again. 
Sheridan would caustically remark, quote, If he cannot be dealt with summarily, the dry Tortugas would be a good reservation for him. End quote. Sheridan did give Crook some wiggle room when it came to negotiations, but he instructed Crook not to make any promises unless it was necessary to get the hostiles to surrender. To increase its odds during the negotiations, Crook decided to bring in some help and one surprise. The surprise we'll get to, but as for the help, he recruited Alchese, his favorite scout from his 1873 campaign, as well as Dos Tese, who I won't blame you for not remembering as the wife of Cochise, who had now been dead for a solid decade. And from there, it was just a matter of waiting and waiting and waiting for Moss to tell him that Geronimo was ready to talk. So Crook passed the time hunting quail, playing games of whist, and watching baseball. As another aside, this waiting game did nothing for his popularity, and at one point in mid-March, he had to tell Sheridan, after a month of no communication, that there had still been no change. Meanwhile, the press kept printing salacious rumors and stories about the failures of Crook and his policies, often talking about mass defection of scouts and other major breaking news that hadn't actually happened. Sweeney gives an amusing anecdote where even the rabidly anti-Crook tombstone epitaph had to admit on March 9th that its sources were unreliable, seeing as they had reported on five different occasions that Geronimo had surrendered to Crook, while also printing that the old renegade had died on no less than three different occasions. It turns out that one of their informants, supposedly a retired soldier, was actually an Associated Press reporter who was mostly drunk while interviewing people. So, Crook was not having a good month, but Moss was not actually having a great time down in Mexico either. He felt that the Chiricahua were ready to surrender and that they would definitely sacrifice Geronimo if they had to for favorable terms, but the continual wait was making him more and more nervous. It didn't help that just below the U.S. border, the Triple A brothers, especially one named Charles, had set up a mescal shop. Soon enough, they were selling to the Chiricahua and White Mountain Scouts with Moss, and as we have seen, liquor and the Chiricahua always made for combustible results. Two officers were sent over to the shop to persuade the men to please, please, please stop selling to the scouts, but the brothers were defiant as they were on Mexican soil where the army really didn't have jurisdiction. One brother went so far as to say they, quote, had moved below the line on purpose to get away from the law, end quote. Believe me when I say this will become important in just a little bit. Finally, on March 14th, after more than a month of waiting, Moss and his men spotted smoke signals coming from about 18 miles south. Four envoys had been sent ahead of Geronimo and Nietzsche to prepare for their arrival. Nietzsche, Geronimo, and the 22 warriors with them arrived at the spot on March 19th, saying that they would not move another inch closer to the U.S. border until Crook arrived. However, three days later, Moss convinced them to move about 12 miles north out of fear that Mexican troops would find their camps and kill them. The final spot they settled on was a canyon known to the Apache as Greenwater Running, 
but to the Mexicans as Canyon de los Embudos, or to the Americans as Funnel Canyon. And then, are you ready? It was time for more waiting. Because despite having wired Crook immediately to come and negotiate, Moss received no word about what his CO was up to. Geronimo in particular was asking daily where Crook was, and the lieutenant didn't have a good answer. The Chiricahua, naturally nervous that at any moment someone somewhere was trying to stab them in the back, became more agitated by the day. They had set up their camp roughly a half mile from Moss, in an easily fortified position on top of a rocky hill with three steep gulches around them. Well armed with plenty of ammunition, they remained on alert and would not let a single army officer anywhere close to their camp. Just to add some more drama, it didn't help anything when Charles Tribolet started selling his mescal and whiskey to the newly arrived hostiles too. By the time Crook finally showed up on March 25th, the Chiricahua were in a foul mood from both the weight and some pretty nasty hangovers. To be fair to the general, he wasn't aiming to make things worse with his tardiness. He'd actually been held up a bit because of his special surprise that had been coming back to Arizona via a much-delayed train. None other than Kaitene. Crook had sent for the one-time rebel to be sent to him from San Francisco, hoping that he could talk up conforming to the ways of the White Eyes. Kaitene's time in Alcatraz had transformed the once-troublesome youth, who had now bought into peacefully settling down hook, line, and sinker. According to Captain John G. Burke, Crook's biographer and biggest fan, Kaitene even made a big display about being able to partially read and write, just like the Americans. Before noon, on March 25th, Crook, in his canvas suit and pith helmet astride his donkey, rode into Ebudos Canyon, where he took lunch with the Packers. Afterward, after hearing that finally Crook had come, Geronimo, Nightshade, and some 20-plus warriors came to talk. Crook selected a location for the talks that was, as every history I've read tells us, under the shade of a cottonwood and sycamore tree where he could sit on a small ledge at the base of a knoll. And I'm not kidding, that is literally in every book. Incidentally, when the Chiricahua showed up, they were surprised to see not only Kaitene, but C.S. Fly, the photographer, an assistant, and his equipment as well. So, we actually have photographs of Geronimo, Nightshade, Crook, and the rest negotiating, as well as posing for photos. After you've listened to this episode, head to the podcast website, azhistorypodcast.com, to see some of the photographs of what making history looks like. Seriously, check it out. It's amazing. Burke recalled that there were at least 24 warriors either sitting around Crook or within earshot, all armed with a Winchester or Springfield rifle and cartridge belts filled with ammunition. Others said that they all looked surly and that no one was in a particularly good mood. Crook himself decided to take a hard-line stance against Geronimo and the rest, affecting a businesslike, unsympathetic demeanor and was clearly indignant that he had to be in this position at all. Geronimo started off the talks after a brief aside with Nietzsche. The old renegade launched into a long-winded speech about what had caused him to flee from Turkey Creek, 
which basically boiled down to what we've said before. Everyone was against him, and he just knew that Lieutenant Britton Davis, Chato, and Mickey Free were spreading lies about him, and that he had been warned that his enemies were going to seize and or kill him at any instant. He also denied knowing anything about a plot to kill Lieutenant Davis, which we all know is a lie because he was literally the mastermind behind it. Basically, Geronimo was blaming anyone except himself for what had happened over the past eight months. Eyewitnesses claimed that while Geronimo spoke, beads of sweat rolled down his face as he grasped a small buckskin pouch. Eventually, Geronimo grew upset because, as he gave his poor rationales for bolting from the reservation, Crook just sat, staring at the ground, not speaking and barely even listening. Finally, after demanding the general to say something, Crook looked up and just unloaded on Geronimo. You'll find different versions of what Crook actually responded with, but suffice it to say, he called everything that Geronimo had just said a big old fat lie. He harangued Geronimo about how he had broken out of the reservation and then caused so much destruction and death. Crook beat him up about how, nearly three years beforehand, Geronimo had promised him personally in the Sierra Madres that he wanted peace. That, the general said, was another lie, so he obviously had to do something to get Crook's trust back. Geronimo tried to protest and almost stormed away, but Nietzsche was finally able to keep him in his seat. But Crook kept on going, saying that everything Geronimo did on the reservation wasn't a secret. Everyone knew what he had been up to, so he shouldn't keep trying to talk himself out of trouble. Sometime toward the end of this first meeting, though I have seen it reported as happening toward the beginning as well, there was a disturbance as riders were spotted coming into camp. It turned out to be Chihuahua, who had met up with Uzana and had come to join the parlay. This could have been a tense moment, as the brothers were well known by now for their troublemaking, and Uzana had just spent a few months terrorizing the families of the White Mountain Scouts who were with Moss. But for whatever reason, the fight seems to have suddenly gone out of Chihuahua, who instantly went over to shake Crook's hand and reported that his heart had suddenly quieted down. With everyone together, the general continued in the same vein as before, giving his ultimatum, which is quintessential crook. He said, quote, You must make up your minds whether you will stay out on the warpath or surrender unconditionally. If you stay out, I'll keep after you and kill the last one if it takes 50 years. End quote. He then dismissed them to head to their own camp and think about the offer and then give their answer. As you might expect, that night was all anger in the Chiricahua camp. Geronimo in particular ranted and raved about the way he had been treated and Crook's quote-unquote terms. The Chiricahua had apparently been operating under the assumption that they would be able to return to the reservation under the same terms as the previous time they surrendered, but that obviously was no longer the case. The chiefs argued all night about the situation, with many of the men ready to bolt again and see if Crook could keep his promise to hunt them all down. During this evening, Alchese and Kaitane snuck into the Chiricahua camp to discuss the situation with them, but mostly to get them to calm down and think about it rationally, i.e. surrender now and submit to Crook. It wasn't like the Chiricahua were bargaining from a position of strength after all. 
The pair were able to report back to Crook the next morning that Geronimo, Naiche, and Chihuahua wanted to meet again. Another meeting was scheduled in the afternoon, and this is when C.S. Fly took most of his famous photos of this conference, including the posed ones. The company also discovered Santiago McKinn, the young boy captured by Geronimo in New Mexico in September, who I mentioned back in episode 106. When the group finally got down to brass tacks, Crook laid out his deal. They could not be sent back to the reservation as if nothing had happened. The renegades had to surrender, then they would be shipped back east. But here's the kicker. Believing that Sheridan had given him the wiggle room to negotiate, Crook stipulated that they would be shipped to Florida for two years, but afterward they could return to their homes. You better believe that's going to become a bone of contention very soon. After this meeting on March 26, Kaitane confided to Crook that he believed Chihuahua would take the deal, as he desperately wanted to see his family again. At noon the next day, March 27th, the Renegades came for the last meeting, where they all capitulated. Chihuahua shook Crook's hand, saying, quote, I surrender myself to you, because I believe in you, and you do not deceive us. End quote. Naiche was next, commenting, quote, When I was free, I gave orders, but now I surrender to you. End quote. Geronimo was the last to speak, remarking, quote, Once I moved about like the wind. Now I surrender to you, and that is all. My heart is yours, and I hope that yours will be mine. End quote. Crook is said to have replied to Chihuahua a single word in Apache, Enhua, which meant either it is well, it is over, or it is good. So this is good, right? Crook has brought everyone in, been vindicated, and the whole Apache Wars can fade into the background now, right? And I'm sorry if you saw this coming a mile away, but yeah, not so much. And one of the principal reasons was that whiskey was still flowing like water in the Apache camp. I'm sure Charles AAA's business was booming because he was selling whiskey left and right. The night of the surrender, everyone got rip-snorting drunk. The next morning, Nightshade didn't come to see Crook off because the young chief was still passed out. Speaking of which, yeah, Crook left the next morning. He had planned to go earlier, saying that he had things to do, places to be, yada yada yada. Most urgently, he wanted to inform General Sheridan that he had brought in Geronimo. It was over. The Apache Wars were over. He had said en hua already. Crook had left a few officers in charge, including Moss, a decision that left people, then and now, more than a little incredulous. A bunch of drunk, belligerent Apache, and you expect a few junior officers to be able to handle it? But Crook did expect him to handle it, and he was just gone. Moss tried to get the Apache moving, heading toward the U.S., but in their drunken state, it was hard going, and they only ended up moving a matter of miles. Still, the Apache were able to get their hands on plenty of liquor yet again that night, and Nietzsche even got so drunk that he shot his wife in the lake, having believed that she was flirting with another man. The next morning, Moss was a little more proactive and sent one of the officers with him to very politely and kindly destroy Charles Triblay's mescal shop. This was a move that Burke had actually suggested to Crook, saying, quote, Have Triblay killed as a foe to human society. 
If you don't, it will be the biggest mistake of your life. End quote. But Crook hadn't, and, well, Burke's words would prove prophetic. After Moss had issued this command, he also issued a ration of beef and other supplies to the Chiricahua to hopefully make them a little more amenable to advancing toward the U.S. this time. But that progress was negligible. In retrospect, it's clear to see that the Chiricahua were dragging their feet, though they gave excuses like their herds were played out and needed rest. They came to a stop two miles south of the U.S. border, and Moss could not get them to move an inch further. He also missed the warning sign that Chihuahua was camping away from Geronimo and Nietzsche, which meant that they were definitely not heading toward the same place. That night, there was a general commotion in Geronimo's camp, as it seems they had managed to get their hands on more mescal before the army had shut down AAA's operation. One of the packers commented to Moss that in the morning, there would not be a single Chiricahua left in the camp, but the lieutenant said it would all be fine and soon went to bed. Want to guess who was right on that one? In Geronimo's camp, around 2.30 in the morning on March 31st, Geronimo, Nietzsche, and 18 men, 15 women, and 7 children bolted, heading back toward the Sierra Madres. So the question we have to ask now is, why? The easiest answer is that they were all good and lubricated, which was never a good thing, especially when it came to Geronimo. But we can't just blame this on alcohol. Though it certainly didn't help, it's more that the Cherokee were apprehensive about the future. Crook had been very brusque with them, more so than usual, which puzzled and frightened them into thinking that they couldn't trust him. And his early exit from the camp made them suspect a trap like they were always in danger of in Mexico. Years later, Nietzsche would explain to Crook that he was drunk that night, but he had actually worked it all out in his mind. He conceded that he didn't know how to do the type of labor the white eyes expected, and he didn't think he would like it. He feared being taken away from Arizona and sent to this mysterious place called Florida. He was afraid they were all going to die. Meanwhile, Geronimo had been seized by the irrational fear that Crook was going to designate Chato as the head of the Chiricahua tribe. Geronimo and Chato couldn't stand each other, and there was no way Geronimo was going to serve under the former scout. Geronimo biographer Robert M. Utley summarizes it succinctly as, They knew what life was like in the Sierra Madres, and they didn't know what life was like in Florida. So they chose the Sierra Madres. Unfortunately, they didn't realize that they were also choosing the fate of their entire people. So join me next week as we see all the ramifications of bolting from Crook and his offer, both for the Chiricahua and for the general himself. Because this was the end of the dance between Geronimo and Crook, but it was also the beginning of what one historian has labeled a 27-year nightmare for the Chiricahua. I'm your host, David Rookhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.